Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. You have a Bible and you're old school and would like to open up an actual text, please turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2 is where we're going to look today. We are in this series called They Walk With God where we're looking at different Old Testament saints. And Pastor Chad has preached the last two Sundays. I'll preach today and next Sunday. And he's done a wonderful job just chronicling the faithfulness of God in the life of Old Testament saints. And today I have the honor and privilege of sharing on Moses. I was actually going to share on Ruth, but being Father's Day, Ruth gets next Sunday, all right? And Moses gets this Sunday. So Exodus chapter 2, let me say as we jump into this message this morning, all of us in some way from time to time struggle with pride. Albeit we struggle in different measures with pride, all of us struggle with pride. It doesn't go down easily, does it? Also, in addition to pride, all of us, in some way, some measure, from time to time, we struggle with insecurity. Everybody say insecurity. Insecurity. Especially in the day that we live where social media puts before all of us what everyone else is doing and what everyone else has and possesses. And I want to tell you from the outset or onset of this message today that we must be very mindful because insecurity is extremely dangerous. Insecurity is a very powerful thing. And you say, what do you mean? Well, let me just say from the outset that insecurity in some sense is not inherently bad. Meaning there are some good things and good moments when we should feel insecure. And they protect us. Let me give you an example. If I'm walking out on a deck that is a little bit wobbly and I feel insecure in my footing, what's that going to cause me to do? It's going to cause me to walk a bit more slowly, which would be wisdom. But when we talk about insecurity in terms of the security in me, we're talking about a very serious thing. Now, I want to tell you today, the enemy loves to wreak havoc in our lives using insecurity. So when you look at these three chapters in Exodus, Exodus 2, 3, and 4, chapters 3 and 4 cover one of my favorite conversations in the entire Bible. I can't cover all of it today. We don't have enough time, but we're going to cover the first half of that conversation. But before we get to the conversation, we've got to see that chapter 2 sets up chapters 3 and 4 in the life of Moses. Let me say to you, if you struggle with insecurity, I want you today to see from the very front row just what a big deal insecurity is. Sometimes it's really hard for us to see how insecurity affects us personally, but what I've learned is if we can watch from the front row of how it affects someone else, and especially one of the greatest leaders in the Bible, then we will have the blinders come off and recognize how dangerous insecurity is in our life. What kind of lies we're believing about ourselves, about our God, about our future and Him. Today, you're going to see someone who walked with God. You're going to see a man who was a friend of God. You're going to see a man who talked with God face to face. In fact, had to cover his face with a veil because the glory or Shekinah shone so brightly in the nation. God spoke to Moses like a friend. And this is how close they were. And you're going to see yet even in the midst of that closeness how much damage is done in Moses' life because of what I believe is insecurity. Let me say this to you. If I were your enemy, if I were Satan, I would try to convince you that you couldn't do the call of God in your life before you ever even tried it in order to increase the odds you would never do it. It would be my number one strategy. And this is what he does with insecurity. And the reason why it's so dangerous is that the enemy is trying to stop you from doing what God created you to do. He's trying to prevent you from being obedient to the call of God on your life. So you want to talk about a simple message. I only have two questions. Now I have subpoints under those questions. But two questions. Here's question number one. What is so dangerous about the insecure you? What's so dangerous 
about the insecure you. Let me give you five things. Here's the first one. The insecure you always misleads you. The insecure you always misleads you. Listen to me. Insecurity, more than anything I know as a pastor, will lead you in the exact opposite direction that God wants you to go. Insecurity takes you 180 degrees away from the exact calling God has placed on your life. Now, let me give you the backstory of Exodus 2, 11 and 12. We're going to read 2, 11 and 12. And by the way, 40 years passed between Exodus 2, 10 and Exodus 2, 11. 40 years in one verse, okay? So you got to get what's going on in Moses' life here. Exodus chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. Moses was born as a special baby. The Bible says his mother saw it early on. She knew he was a deliverer. She knew that he was special. Moses grew up in a time where baby boys were being slaughtered all over Egypt. And so in order to protect him, she put him in a basket, right? A basket and sent him off down the Nile River. What's amazing is that Pharaoh's daughter finds him, sees this baby boy, and she adopts him as her own. By the way, Pharaoh's daughter is a lady named Thermuthis. Thermuthis, what an awesome, awesome name. And so Thermuthis finds Moses and takes him in as her own and then hires Moses' mother to nurse him. She doesn't know it's Moses' mother, but she hires this servant to nurse Moses. She adopts Moses as her own. And y'all, this is crazy because Egypt at this time was the most powerful nation on earth. So watch this. Moses grows up in the most powerful home of not just the most powerful home, of the most powerful man, of not just the most powerful man, of the most powerful nation on earth. And we know when Moses turns 40 what he does. He kills a fellow Egyptian. But why does he do it? Can I propose to you today, I've never seen what I'm about to show to you in Exodus chapter 2. I think I might have some insight onto what it is that causes Moses to actually do what he does. Exodus 2 verse 11 and 12, many years later when Moses had grown up, 40 years now passed, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard, watch this, he saw how hard they were forced to work. They're slaves. Forced to work by who? Egypt. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. And after looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, very important statement, Moses killed the Egyptian and he hid the body in the sand. Now, I've never noticed this before, but I actually think that what triggered Moses, just my opinion, I can't give you absolutes here. I can't say some commentator said it. I'm going to say Pastor Craig suggested it for you. My opinion is that Moses in this moment was the trauma of growing up as a minority in Pharaoh's house. He knows that he's not like his brother. He knows that he's not like his kinfolk. And here's why. Because the first time he sees an Egyptian beating on someone like him, he cannot control what's going on inside of him. It's almost like he has no ability to control the impulse that's inside of his own, own heart. It's very well possible, listen, that God was trying to very early on teach Moses how to communicate with the oppressor in order to free the oppressed because that would be the call of God in his life and he does not know how to do that appropriately here. He does not know how to communicate to the oppressor, the Egyptian, to free the oppressed, his brother. So he kills the Egyptian. But I believe that maybe because of insecurity, he grew up in a minority and as a minority and the most powerful man on earth is in his home. I think it's possible, listen church, that he had some insecurity. Growing up in his brother's shadow, he was never going to be enough. Now his Hebrew parents, he had two older siblings. He had an older sibling, uh, older sister, Miriam, and he had an older brother, Aaron, right? But when we see in this text, he also, in Moses, in Egypt, grew up with brothers. And he thinks, you know what? I'm never going to be enough. He's an outcast. And the first chance he gets, I think he was triggered and he knew he was wrong. Do you know how he knew he was wrong? How do I know he was wrong? Look what the text just said. The Bible says he looked around and he did it anyways. 
He ensured that nobody was watching or what he thought no one was watching. And he killed the Egyptian. And he goes the exact opposite direction God was leading him to go. Are you with me? I don't think that we have to interpret scripture and say God made him go into the desert for 40 days to then be a deliverer. Nothing tells us that that had to be the plan of God. But he goes in the opposite direction God wants him to go, which is out of this depth of insecurity, and he now has to be a vagabond. He has to run and be a fugitive in the wilderness. Let me just tell you this. Battling in my own insecurity, especially in my early on 20s, there's one thing I learned about insecurity. Are you ready? It loves two behaviors. The two behaviors of insecurity are to overcompensate and underreact. This is what insecurity loves to do, to overcompensate and to underreact. Insecurity loves to overcompensate. One of the ways, let me speak to the men a minute, okay? One of the ways, men, you can spot a very insecure man or man in a group of men. The most insecure man is typically the loudest, boldest, brashest man among them, right? And he's overcompensating, Listen to me. I'm not trying to call anybody out. I'm just talking to you, man 101, what it means to be a man 101. Let me go and tell you what it means to be a man. We overcompensate, prancing like a peacock, hoping no one else in our workplace will look what's underneath our feathers. Prancing like a peacock, loudest, brashest, got to be boldest, most arrogant, in order to cover up the insecurity of our own heart. But listen, the other way to deal with insecurity is to underreact. See, it makes sense, doesn't it? Not everyone responds to insecurity in the same way. Some people, it causes them, and I think this is what we have in our church. Some people, it causes them to fade back into the corner like a wallflower and do nothing and say nothing and underreact and not do what God has called them to do. So watch this. Some overdo it because of insecurity, and some underdo it because of insecurity. What was Moses? Moses overdid it. He killed a man. He murdered an Egyptian. Now here's the second answer to why, the dang how dangerous the insecure you is. Here's the second reason why the insecure you is dangerous. Number two, the insecure you always doubts you. The insecure you always Doubt you. Now, before we get to Exodus 3, we're going to read 9, 10, and 11. We've got to realize what happens between what we just read in Exodus 2 and what we're about to read in Exodus 3. Well, God appears to Moses. He's on the backside of a desert. He finds, a, a, I mean, can you imagine this? You go from imperial Egypt dominion and power to becoming a goat herder. You want to talk about a slap in the face. He finds a man named Jethro, and he marries the daughter Zipporah. He has two boys. Moses has two boys through Zipporah. And he's now on the backside of a desert 40 years later, and he, is, he literally meets with God face to face. Yahweh, the self-sustaining, in, in theology we call it the aseity of God, the self-sustaining one, the one that says, I am that I am. I don't need any help. I exist outside of the help of any of my creation. He appears to Moses, and when that moment, Moses encounters the living God, and I want you to watch what happens next. You ready? Watch what happens. Exodus 3, 9, 10, and 11. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, God says, and I've seen how harshly Egyptians abused them. For I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people out of Israel or out of e Egypt. But verse 11, Moses protested to God. Anybody ever protested to God? We ever protest him? He protested to God. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? Notice this. Insecurity is fixated on me. Who am I? It's convinced and, and, and fixated on self. Who am I? Who am I? Listen to me, y'all. I am convinced Satan loves when we are insecure because he'd much rather me be focused on me than me be focused on God. He wants me to look at me. He wants me to focus on me. He wants me to find excuses about me. He wants me to think about me. He wants me to see me. He wants me to be preoccupied with me. So here's how you know you struggle with insecurity. Are you ready? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Now watch this. If in that moment you don't answer that question the way God answers that question, you, my friend, are struggling 
with insecurity or shame. It's as simple as that. If you don't answer the question, who am I? The way God answers the question, who are you? You're struggling with insecurity. You're struggling with shame. Moses says, who am I to do this? And he totally skipped past the whole part where the God of the universe speaks directly to him. And out of all peoples, God says, listen, Moses, I have handpicked you. And because of Moses' insecurity, he protests with God and says, no way. Who am I? No way I can be used by you, God. Who am I? Who am I to be the deliverer? Here's the third answer to why the insecure you is so dangerous. Number three, the insecure you incessantly what ifs you. Now, I want to be very clear with point number three here. I did not say the insecure you just doubts you. I'm talking about the insecure you incessantly, without end, what ifing you. What do you mean? Moses says, Who am I, God? God says, Okay, all right, let me come back at you, bro. And you know what the first thing God promises Moses to his objection, protest? I am with you, Moses. I'm going to be with you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm with you. You're asking the question, who am I? You should be asking the question, who is with you? I am with you, Moses. Who am I? Who am I? Oh, I am that I am. That's who I am. And I am will be with you. You're asking, who am I? You need to figure out who I am. Don't you love how God just twisted on him? I mean, just literally twisted on him in an instant. You're asking, who am I? I'm telling you, I am. I am. You're asking, who am I? You should be asking, who am I? Who is with you? Who's going to lead you? And then to ensure Moses that this wasn't going to be easy, so he didn't want to get his hopes up too high, right? God says, hey, I've handpicked you, but I know Pharaoh won't let my people go, so don't get too excited. This won't be easy. This is going to be real hard, but listen to me. I'm going to make you a promise. It's all a part of my plan. And then God says something to him. He says, I'm going to do miraculous things through you. Y'all, you need to pause a minute and, and not and, and move close to the text. Don't stay at this pious distance. I want you to imagine for a moment to put yourself in Moses' situation. What if God appears to you, speaks to you, says I'm with you, he then promises you, I will do miraculous things through you, and then eventually when Pharaoh lets my people go, you will take all of Egypt's wealth with you. When I read this text, I think, how in the world could I ever be so insecure? How in the world could I ever even for a moment doubt? If God handpicked me, if God promised his presence with me and he promised to give me all of the wealth of Egypt. How could I be so insecure? Here's the answer. Insecurity is that powerful. It's that powerful. It's that dangerous that even when talking face to face to God, you can talk yourself out of what God is asking of you. So people say, oh, well, you need to have a revelation that God speaks to you. I've stopped praying that. It don't matter if God speaks to an insecure person. <laughs> it's, 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 it's amazing. It doesn't matter. You can talk yourself out of it, even if God himself shows up in a bush. It takes something else to overcome insecurity. It's something more than just hearing God commission your soul or speak to your own heart. Look what happens in Exodus chapter 4. Let's read it. Verse 1, the text says, but Moses protested again, not just the first time. He says, what if they won't believe me or what if they won't listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? Y'all know this is one of the most dangerous questions to wrestle with. What if they? What if they? What if they? What if they don't like me? What if, what if they don't approve of me? What if they fire me? What if they don't appreciate me? What if they don't listen to me? What if they reject me? What if they, what if they? We know we're dealing with insecurity when we talk about them too much. Them, what if they? It just comes with it. Y'all, and I should know this because when I struggle with insecurity, my early my late teens and early 20s, 
Every message I preached, you know what I would do? I would look into the crowd and I would try to, while I was preaching, determine and see how I was being received by the look on their faces. So when I'm 19 years old preaching and someone falls asleep, you know what I immediately thought? Even while I'm preaching, something's wrong with me. There's no ability for me to preach. I might never think in that moment, ever, I would never think in that moment, oh, my bro pulled a double shift last night and he's completely tired and this is what destroys churches, folks. It's people's insecurity. It's people's insecurity to never be able to look beyond their own issues in these moments. And then all of a sudden the enemy throws discord because we can never see beyond our own insecurity, our own challenges. And so then we start gossiping and then we make up and we accept every lob and assault from the enemy. And then all of a sudden the enemy gets all up involved. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, I might just be the most boring preacher on the planet. Some of you are like, eh, It's okay. Listen, I don't give a rip if you think I'm boring anymore. I don't get up on this stage to preach for the acceptance and reception of anybody else in this room. I don't do that anymore. I get down off this stage in a little bit and I'm not looking at your face for your reception. I'm looking at one face that's his and he's already accepted me and he's already called me the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Y'all, every time I get off this stage, I go stand in that back door and I watch you and I greet your hand and I, I shake your hand and I greet you and I bless you as you go about your week. And I'm not going back there so that you can tell me, hey, good message. No, no. I want you to have one objective. I want you to hear him speak to you. I want you to come to dwelling place and say, man, it's not just about preachers. It's not just about worship. It's about a community of people that we have allowed God to capture the attention of our ear and that we hear God and that we listen to God and we encounter God in his goodness. That's the goal. It's the goal every Sunday. But listen, when we're battling insecurity, we do a lot of fixating on they. They. We interpret what happens in church. What they are doing affects me and is against me or for it's all about they and me. Now think about social media for a minute. How many of them like what I posted? How many of them didn't like what I posted based upon their comments? Do y'all know what kind of scary existence that is for the up and coming generation? This is why the young bucks... They're not, they're not at a place where their brains are developed to even leverage social media for a good cause. They're not. They're unable to do so. Now, I'm not beating up so I love social media. If it's leveraged for the gospel, one of the most effective tools. If you're not just up there being vain and putting any and everything you want to put so people fixate on you and give you comments, but you leverage it for the sake of the gospel and the work of God, it's powerful. It's unbelievably powerful. But listen to me. You know what kind of a scary, ex- that I would dole my whole life down to essentially to a pole of what everyone else likes or dislikes about me. Like where in the world is God in that? But this is what insecurity does. It's an, in an attempt to be liked, it will change itself and change anything about itself in order to be liked by them. Listen to me. I don't want to be liked by them. I want to be loved. There's a big difference. Some of y'all, I'm going to free you up right quick. Some of you, the people in your life right now that are giving you the hardest drama, you need to be able to say to them, the version of me that you created in your mind is not my responsibility. The version of you that you, of me that you created in your mind about me is not my responsibility to uphold or make. And insecurity will make me run ragged to meet that demand. It will lead me to striving, and that striving will lead me right outside the will of God for my life. Moses is encountering God. What if they? What if they? What if they? And this is how insecurity talks. It's incessantly what ifs you to death. Now, I want to give you one quick thing. We'll go to number four. You need to understand the tone of insecurity's voice. Can I give you the tone of insecurity's voice? The tone in insecurity's voice is always fear. It's always fear. It's always fright. It's always FOMO. It's this sense of missing out. Here's the fourth thing. Why is the insecure you so dangerous? Here's the fourth thing. The insecure you cannot clearly see you. The insecure me cannot clearly see me. This is a biggie. Between verse 1 and verse 10, God goes even further. Moses is protesting him. And immediately after Moses says, what if they, what if they, 
What if they, what if they, God says, okay, Moses, what's in your hand? He says, what is that in your hand? And he says, oh God, it's a staff. He said, throw it down. You know what it does? Turns into a snake. He says, pick it back up by the tail. Picks it back up with the tail. Turns into a staff again. I can imagine God in that moment be like, impressive, Moses? They all, ain't he doing it for Moses? He ain't like, no, I don't do it for me. So he says, all right, cool. You want to keep protesting? All right, show me your hand. Put it in your jacket. Pull it back out. White as snow, leprosy. Put it back in. Pull it back out. Normal hand. That doing it for you, Moses? That is not doing it for my man Moses. That miraculous act and sign is not doing it. That's not overcoming his insecurity as well. So God says, okay, well, you keep protesting. All right. Um, If they don't accept those two signs, I want you to take some water from the Nile River. I want you to pour it on the ground in front of Pharaoh, and I'm going to turn it to blood, and that'll shut it down. God is trying to communicate to Moses, I am with you. I am for you. This is a divine setup, Moses. Your weakness is a divine setup for my divine strength. And y'all, he could not see it. His insecurity would not enable him to see what God was asking of him. He wrestles with God over it, and he could not ever come to the conclusion that he could actually be the guy that God would use to pull this off. And he definitely doesn't see himself clearly. Look at verse 10. Look at what Moses says in verse 10. Notice the text. Next slide. This is what the text says. He says in verse 10, But Moses pleaded with the Lord again, O Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been, and I'm not now. And even though you've spoken to me, listen to that, even though you've spoken to me, I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. Y'all, here is my problem with what Moses is saying to God about his speech problem. It was a lie. He created a lie ultimately to mask his insecurity. How do you know? Look at Acts chapter 7. Stephen, the first martyr, speaks about Moses. What does he say in Acts 7.22? Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in both speech and action. Who wrote the book of Exodus? Moses. He's one of the greatest men ever with words. You will lie to God to cover your insecurity. You'll start making up narratives about you that God has never said about you. You will do everything you can to not be used by God when you live out of an insecure shell. This is why it's so dangerous. He now says to God, oh God, no, I'm, I'm bad with my words. Moses, you wrote the whole Torah. You were powerful in both speech and in action. Did did Stephen say, Moses, man, he was terrible in his speech? No. Insecurity tries to find every possible excuse to not be used by God. And let me tell you something. You ready? Next slide. The insecure you creates narratives about you which God would never speak over you. And then we live out of that narrative of insecurity. I want you to think just a moment. God did not agree with what Moses was saying about his mouth. In fact, at this point, he gets so frustrated. The Bible says the Lord gets mad. And he says, okay, I'll just give you Aaron. I want you to think just a minute how many times the Lord says to you, hey, I've handpicked you, and here's what I want you to do. And the first words out of your mouth are why it can't be you. No, it can't be me. Who am I? I've been there. You've been there? Here's what insecurity does. It causes you to magnify your weaknesses and minimize your strengths. And God doesn't even talk about Moses' mouth, but Moses won't shut up about his mouth. Why? Because the insecure you cannot clearly see you. Here's the fifth thing of why Insecurity or the insecure you is so dangerous. Here's the fifth one. The insecure you always sees the last resort as only you. So when insecurity is at its worst, church, it puts you at the back of the line every time. Look at verse 13. But Moses again pleaded, Lord, please send anyone else 
God, I'm exasperated. I can't make up any more lies. I don't know any more excuses to give you. It is what it is. Would you just please, Lord, would you please pick somebody else? There's no way it can be me. Let me say something, and I want you to hear me by God's Spirit. Some of you are battling insecurity, and God right now is giving you words for the people around you, and we're missing out as a church on what God is trying to do through you simply because you are allowing insecurity to beat you. And as a result, our body suffers because individuals suffer. So let's just recap. You ready? God. Hey, uh, Moses, I've seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. I've come to rescue them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Bring my people out of Egypt. Moses, who am I that I should go? Oh, God says, oh, I'll be with you. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask me, what's his name? Oh, no big deal. Say, I am that I am. I am has sent me to you. What if they don't believe me or listen to me? God gives multiple signs, hand, leprosy, gives staff, snake. Moses' insecurity is still not allowing him to be free, so it leads into a lie. What does he say? Pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent. I can't speak my words. And still, what does God do? He responds with grace and he redirects Moses' attention to where power is found, which is in his own strength. And Moses clung to that insecurity with all kinds of, 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 secure, uh, of insecurity, and he refused obedience, and he says, Lord, just please someone else. And in this moment, God becomes angry with Moses. But still, because of who God is, he provides Moses with the help of his brother Aaron. Now, I want you to tell me. I've been there before. But maybe today, if you're there, is the time for you to go to the head of the line and stop allowing insecurity to put you in the back of the line. Which brings me to point number two, question number two. How do you overcome insecurity? If that's what insecurity does to you and does to me, how do I overcome it? Three things. First, number one, you've got to get a revelation of the power of a pure partnership between you and God. You got to get a revelation, a clear revelation. Show that next slide. A revelation of the pure partnership between God and you. It's a pure partnership. Look at Exodus 4, verse 11. Now remember, Moses complained of his mouth in verse 10, right? Remember, he said, I, I can't speech. speak. So look at verse 11. This is what God says. Then the Lord asked Moses, Who makes a person's mouth, bro? Who decides whether people speak or don't speak? Who decides whether somebody hears or doesn't hear? Who decides whether someone sees or doesn't see? And not I, the Lord. Now go, I will be with you as you speak. Watch this. I will be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you in what to say. Let me paraphrase, okay? Why are we talking about your mouth, bruh? That's the modern-day vernacular, nomenclature. Why are we talking about your mouth? Do you not know who I am, Moses? I can make donkeys talk. Do, do, are you, you and I on the same page here? You, I know you've been running about 40 years, but let's get a little re, rehash. You don't understand what we're capable of together. Your mouth, when it's surrendered to me, Moses, I will empower it. And look what he says. He says, when you speak, I will instruct you in what to say. Now, y'all, when I think about what I am capable of myself, there's a posture I have. I've seen this movie before. You know what it is? It's slumped shoulders. Not physically, but I walk through my life with slumped shoulders spiritually. But let me tell you something. When I learn to think about what the two of us are capable of together, then something supernatural happens in my life where my shoulders get squared. And in that moment, I'm not confident in me I saw how that movie worked many times. But you know who the best example in Scripture of this is? Who understood that this is an us thing? It was King David. King David was a small little runt. He was right, nothing of his appearance that was really, you know, attractive or brought people to him. But do you remember in 1 Samuel 17 when he goes to Saul, who's the king, in the valley of Elah, and it's time to defeat Goliath? Do you remember what he says to Saul? He says, Saul, I can't take your own armor. But this is what he says to Saul. He says, Saul, I killed the lion 
and I killed the bear. And this is what he said. I'll kill that giant today. Now, if you stop right there, you would say, oh, that undoes Pastor Craig's message because he's that's all confidence in himself. But you got to read the next text because the very next statement out of David's mouth is this. He says, the same God who delivered me from the lion and delivered me from the mouth of the bear will deliver me today from this giant. Listen to me. David knew it was an us thing. He knew it was a pure partnership. And what did he say to Goliath? He walks up in that battle. He walks up in that valley of Elah where every warrior has been scared to death. And what does he say? He says very clearly, today the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you. You want a theological lesson on God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? He says the Lord's going to conquer you and when he does, I'll kill you. Hey, let me give you a little jab. Hey, hey big man, I'm going to cut your head off in a few minutes. I'm going to cut your head off because the Lord who I serve, he will conquer you. And because he conquers you, I will kill you. See, we think that's narcissism. Narcissism says, look at me. Confidence says, look at God in me. And we have been robbed of that kind of Christ-centered confidence. We have been robbed in an effort to stay meek or humble We've been robbed of the confidence of a King David to stand before and say, the Lord's going to conquer you and I'm going to kill you. And I'm going to cut your head off this day. Why is David unafraid? Why? Because he knew what he and his God were capable of in partnership. David was aware of God's presence with him. He was aware. Listen, do you know how hard it is to be insecure when you are fully aware that God's just not with you, but he dwells in you and he's empowering you in everything he desires from you. Look at me, Christian. God abides in you and he has promised to empower you in everything he desires for you. And when that revelation dawns on us, insecurity would dissipate. Y'all, this is not a fair fight. Many of you I counsel, I've talked to you as members of this congregation, and I tell you, you know one of the phrases I use all the time, especially if I meet with business people? One of the phrases I use in my own counseling, my own vernacular, is I say to you, you've heard me say it to you, we have the most unfair advantage in the history of humankind as a believer in Jesus Christ. And, and somebody says, well, I don't feel like I've got an unfair advantage. I say, well, the God of the universe is with you, but do you go into the office every day cognizant of that fact? Do you go into the hospital room that you work in, cognizant of the reality that the God of the universe is with you? Do you focus on that or do you focus on the most powerful person in your job place that's at the top of your org chart? Do you focus on the fact that Creator is with you and inside you or the powerful people around you? See, arrogance walks and talks about what I'm capable of. Confidence in God talks about what we are capable of. Some of you say, well, I was struggled on the other side, the pride side. Well, listen to me, hear me. God will allow you to rely on you to simply teach you that this won't work until you rely on Him. And He'll do it for a season. He'll let you rely on you until you come to the end of the rope and realize this ain't going to work until you rely on Him. But look at me, church, look at me. If you're frustrated today by your weaknesses, if you're frustrated by your downfalls, let me remind you, next slide, God gives us weaknesses, clear weaknesses, and he gives them to us so we will come to the one who has all strength for our strength. But I have to get a divine revelation of the pure partnership between God and myself. How do you overcome insecurity? Here's number two. I've got two more for you. Number two, you've got to get a revelation of God's divine obsession with you. Another way to say this is God's divine love for you. Getting a revelation of God's divine obsession with you is the fastest way to kill insecurity inside you. When I first started in ministry, I was least confident person. I was the least confident person in me. Especially being a first generation Christian in my family and then first generation pastor in my family. And I was least confident in me until I understood what God felt about me. Look at me, look at me, especially ladies. Understanding God's love for you is the beginning of you being comfortable with you. 
You got to be comfortable with you when you understand God's obsession with you. So let's look at Psalm 139. And if you struggle with insecurity, I'm going to ask you to meditate on this passage. This will be your homework this week. Psalm 139, so powerful, so unbelievably powerful. If you're battling insecurity, meditate on this truth. Powerful words. Look at Psalm. I wish we could read the whole thing. We can't. Let's read four verses. David said, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship's marvelous, God. How well I know it. You watched me. Listen to this. You didn't, see, you, you, you didn't hear me. You didn't just know. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. That's the, that's the, it's the uterus. It's the womb. Right? I was woven together in the dark of the womb. Notice this. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book, and every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They're innumerable. They cannot be numbered. I want you to get a picture of your mom. I'm watching This Is Us right now with my wife. Randall is absolutely the best actor in that series. I love some Randall. Randall does an amazing job. So I'm watching Randall. I want you to get a picture of your mom standing in a room. And she's pregnant carrying you. And God himself is going. He's staring at you while you're being formed in utter seclusion. I imagine God has a little flip book of every single moment of my life before I even have one moment. He's the Alpha and Omega, knows my beginning. And I'm going to tell you something this morning, church. I think if every follower of Jesus Christ actually believed Psalm 139 was true about them, I think we could win the whole world in a year. If you really believe this is what God felt about you, the insecurity would no longer be the problem of your heart. God, your thoughts are amazing about me, and I can't number them. If I don't try to enumerate them, that's impossible. And David goes on to say, when I awaken God, you're with me. I've told you this story before, but i got to tell you again. I remember the day when I lived in Cleveland, Tennessee, and we had two kids. Knox was about three years old, and our, our Marley girl, who's now nine, was not even a year old. She's in her bedroom. She's got her diaper halfway undone. She's got her blankie called Moe hanging out the side of her, her crib. And I walked in there early one morning. My wife is still asleep. It's still dark. There's a little bit of sunlight coming in the window. And I stood in front of her crib. And I remember just worshiping and praying for her. And I just got so wrapped up in God's love. And I remember looking at that little baby, not even a year old. And I lifted my hands to heaven. And I said, God, out of all the daddies in the world, I just want to thank you so much that you let me be the dad of Marley and Mossgrove. And as soon as I said that, the Lord of glory stepped into that room and he said, Craig, every morning before you wake up, did you know I walk into your room and I stand over your bed and I just pray for you and I smile over you and I'm giddy for you and I, I literally praise, praise. I'm, I'm giving honor and worship. Jesus saying, I'm giving honor and worship to my father because of you. If you're battling insecurity, my prayer this week is for you to get a revelation of God standing over your bed every morning before you even get up. And I'm talking about men as well as women. And God walks up into your bedroom every single morning and he stands over your bed and he says, oh man, heaven, this is her kindergarten pick. Look how much she's changed. But boy, you know, I, I know in the, in the refrigerator, heaven, we've had our kindergarten picture, but look, she's now 29 and isn't she so beautiful? And, and I knit her together and I've got such great purpose for her and I haven't stopped being able to stare at her. Do you believe God loves you like that. Listen, I know you believe Jesus died on a cross for you. I'm not asking you that. That feels distant and theological. I'm asking you, do you know that God stands in your bedroom 
and looks over you and refuses to, to take his eyes off of you. That he watches over you. He has a divine obsession with you. People say, you can't use that kind of theological word. Okay, what do you call somebody who is, who is so overwhelmed with another person that they don't stop thinking about them and they have innumerable thoughts? You call them obsessed. What do you call a person who won't stop looking at another person? They see them every day. They look at them on their feed. You call them obsessed. God is obsessed with you. He loves you with an everlasting love. How in the world could insecurity remain? He's obsessed. Well, Craig, God's angry with me. One of the reasons why we say that is we start with angry because we think we deserve it. David said, when I open my eyes every day, Lord, you're there. Do you know how hard it is to feel a low sense of value for yourself when the one who owns it all stares at you and you're made in his image? How can I feel a low sense of value? Y'all, I'm not being narcissistic. It feels there's always pushback on this. Listen, narcissism is when I stare at me. Getting a revelation of God's obsession is when I understand that he won't stop staring at me. He loves me. And for me, when I first became a youth pastor, it was so hard because I worried about what everybody else thought about me. What do the people think about me? What do parents think about me? What do young adults think about me? You better be glad as a member of this church. God help me and deliver me, right? Before I became a pastor because people will actually leave the church from time to time, Craig, in your future, and they're actually going to use you as the reason for leaving. You better get over the insecurity quickly. And here's how you do it. You ready? Next slide. Man's opinion of me must be crowded out by God's obsession with me. It's going to crowd out the expectations of people around me. Here's the third answer and I'm done. Have a zero tolerance policy for comparison. You got to have a zero tolerance policy for comparison. Listen. I know we don't like to think about it, but anyone you compare yourself to, you're competing against. So if you compare yourself to other people in the church, guess who? Guess what the, the brothers and sisters in the church become? Competition to you. If you compare yourself to someone, you're competing against that someone. And the dichotomy is set up in my mind that only one of us can be best. Right? And social media, if it's not leveraged correctly, becomes the number one tool of comparison. What is he doing? What is she doing? What does he want? So let me read this last passage for you. Ready? This is out of Eugene, uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. Galatians 5, 25 and 26. Since this is the kind of life we've chosen, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure that we don't just hold it as an idea in our heads. We can't hold the idea of the Spirit-filled life as a sentiment in our hearts. we got to work out its implications in every detail of our lives. This means we will not compare ourselves with each other as if one of us were better or one of us we're worse. We have far more interesting things to do with our lives than compare ourselves. For each of us is an original. Listen to me. God never talks this way, y'all. God never says only one of us can be good and others are bad. That's what, that's an unnatural dichotomy. It, God never says one can be good and that makes everybody else bad. It means no, all can be good. And we're not called to compare one another. And Satan loves to tear us down by getting us to compare up. Here's his play. Satan don't want you to compare down unless that leads you to pride. He wants you to compare up. And when you compare up, it leads to insecurity. Because if you think he has more money than you, then you might be inclined to spend more money you don't have so that you look like he looks like. If you think that he has a, a greater success in his job than you, you more and more inclined to what? Cut corners so that you have more success in your job so that you appear to be as successful as he is. Listen to me. This is what comparison does. We have to have a zero, zero tolerance policy for comparison. Zero tolerance policy. Comparison it can't survive in our hearts in our lives any longer. So what do you have to do? The worship team's gonna come, but I'm gonna I'm gonna propose to you, you gotta get a revelation of the jacket. The revelation of the jacket. And you say, Craig, what about what do you mean the revelation of the jacket? 
what is that? It don't even make sense. A revelation of a jacket. I want you to think just for a moment. Uh, Casey, my brother Casey, would you come up here real quick? This is my brother Casey Moon. You know him. Connect group leader, but also security man. Helps with our ushers. Grateful for Casey. So let, let me just show you something real quick. So I bought this jacket several years ago, and it fits me. Now, it's not perfect. It's not a, it's not a tailored fit. I didn't spend that kind of money. But I did spend the kind of money that at least it's, it works okay, right? It, it fits pretty well with me, okay? This jacket, therefore, was made by the distributor, right? By the manufacturer to fit me, to fit my structure, okay? Now, I want you to see this. <clears throat> now, don't, don't, don't break my jacket, okay? All right. So, you don't have, yeah, just, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, let's just put it right, <laughs> yeah. Let's get it right. That's good. You just hold it right there, okay? All right. So, some of you would be tempted, listen, some of you would be tempted in this moment to say, man, there's something off about Casey's form. Wrong. There's something off about his form, man. Wrong. There's something off about Casey fitting into my coat. Casey was never designed to fit into my coat. It was designed to fit into his coat. If I tried to put on Casey's coat, it wouldn't fit either. I, I would be swallowed up in it. It would, it would look like I'm in a T.D. Jakes coat, right? I'm not Casey. Casey's not me. I'm not graced to do what Casey is called to do. I'm not called to fit into what he fits. He's not called to fit into what I... So why in the world would I ever compare myself to Casey if he's not graced by God in the same way I'm graced by God? There is nothing wrong with this form. There's nothing wrong. You, you're a good looking man, by the way, all right? I know, I know your wife thinks so. There's nothing wrong with this form whatsoever. There is something wrong with the reality that this coat does not fit. Does not fit. You can take the coat off, buddy. Y'all let Casey know how appreciative you are. Thank you. Man. Look at me. Look at me. God fashioned a coat for every person in this room that is specifically tailored. And until you get a revelation of God's partnership with you and His divine obsession with you, and you get to a place where you're able to have a zero tolerance comparison model, you'll always be robbed, fall short of God's specific high calling for you. Last slide. Would you read this with me? I want you just to read it with me. Knox, that last slide that I have in my message. Insecurity comes when you don't understand the power of God in you, the possibilities of God working through you, the magnitude of God's obsession with you, and the divine uniqueness of the call of God on you. That's when insecurity comes. Today, let's put insecurity as in the words of Steph Curry, night-night. Let's put insecurity to bed. Ask God to give us revelation. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.